0: Welcome, Church, to the house of the Lord this morning. Thank you, Sister Mary, for that delightful hymn. I hope you're ready to receive from the Lord this morning, Church. We have the distinct privilege to welcome to the pulpit this morning. Uh, um, uh, what's that dude's name? You are now tuned in to the Sermon Archives of William R. Horn, Kingdom Dreamer Productions. This is Season 1, Sermons of Days Past, I believe we're on Episode 6. Today we got a sermon coming all the way back from 2013 again. This one is from March 17th, 2013, also at my church in Springfield, Ohio, as the last few episodes have been. Uh, This one is entitled, How to Find God's Will for Your Life in Springfield, Ohio. Uh, Before we jump into the sermon, though, I do have a few things to highlight. First off, if you're not following me on Twitter, why? That's a good question. You should follow me on Twitter. If you don't have a Twitter account, get one. Follow me at William R. Horn, H-O-R-N-E. We can chop it up there, show some love. Also want to highlight, we just, as the Kingdom Dreamers, uh, and myself and all the people involved in that network, opened up our Patreon page, so now you can support us for as little as $5 a month, become a part of our community, support the podcast, the writing, all the creating that we're doing. I do want to highlight one tier that we have and that is very special to me. Uh, it's called the book club. So for $28 a month, you can become a part of the book club. And how this book club works is every month you'll be sent a book. So we essentially curate books that help influence what our philosophy, our thoughts as the kingdom dreamers. Um, you'll get a book sent every month. Then you're invited for any tier, you're invited into our Discord community, but the book club has a special channel on the Discord community. If you don't know what Discord is, a lot of gamers used in the past, but it's pretty broad now. It's just basically a chat system, a way to create a community of communication, kind of like a private chat room back in the day. Um, But the book club has a special channel in our Discord community where You can discuss with each other, with myself, uh, the books each month that are passed out as you read them. So it's a good way to um, get your books curated for you to begin to expand your mind on the theology, sociology. Those are kind of most of the realm. Um, So we're beginning that in April. So when you join the book club tier, whatever month you join it, you'll automatically Uh, be sent that book of the month, and then the first of each month that you keep uh, in that tier, you'll be sent that, and we'll be able to basically have an online book club. So I'm looking forward to that one. Check that out if you want some good reading, some good community discussion. But without further ado, I think I have a disclaimer. Man, there's always a disclaimer. Remember, my disclaimer for all sermons, past, present, and future, is I hold the right to change my mind about something I said. Allow me to be a thinker, a grower, um, and that's particularly applies to season one sermons of days past. Uh, this one is pretty. I mean, there's not a whole lot there, but again, I quote John Piper, as I said in one of the earlier sermons. Um, John Piper is a good guy. Um, you know, his heart's for the Lord, but we disagree on a lot of things. Um, but I quote particularly his quote about Christian hedonism, which Is kind of his philosophy of the Christian life uh, being centered around joy and you getting ultimate joy when God is most glorified, things like that. I think on the surface, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. I think joy is a critical part of the Christian life, the Christian walk, and then how that relates to suffering. Um, But I don't know if I'd be as strong as Piper's Christian hedonism. Um, I'm also not quite that Calvinistic, more Arminian, but... um, at the time it was certainly impactful. So um yeah with that disclaimer, let's jump in. So how to find God's will for your life from sermon at my church, Springfield, Ohio, when I was a youth pastor, March 17th, 2013. Let's get it. Today I want to talk about God's will for your life. And some of you may be thinking that's kind of a heavy topic or who are you to tell me what God wants with my life, right? That's kind of cliche, or all the other things you've heard about God's will. It's a term we throw around a lot. But first off, i like to note that God's word is never cliche or overdone, but is alive and active and used to wage war against the enemy. Who wants nothing good for your life? So we cannot ever say anything is cliche. And second off, I'm far from God, so I cannot tell you what he wants for your life. But I know he is showed us in scripture what he wants for our life. And I'm in desperate need of God's grace and mercy just as you. I'm humbled to be up here today. I also wholeheartedly agree with the great scholastic theologian, Anselm of Canterbury, who said this. He said, therefore, man, whose nature is rational, was made holy for this end, that he might be happy in enjoying God. So those who put their trust and faith in God, God has made them holy, and he is calling them to be holy. And Anselm's saying, he's made us holy for one end and one end only, that we are happy in enjoying God. A lot of us don't think about God in that term. We think about a dictator and rules. I don't think we've seen God clearly, if that's how we think about him. A more modern rendition of this quote was made by Pastor John Piper, who said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You were created to enjoy God as the ultimate good. He is the ultimate and pleasing God. And his will for your life is not that you would hate or that you would be hesitant with him, but that you would thoroughly enjoy him. And I hope today to not only point you to what God's will for your life is, but that that will leave you with a hunger for God himself that will lead you to worship. The first task is for us to get a fuller picture of who God is. So now you can turn in your Bibles back to that Romans 11 passage that we just read, which starts in verse 33. And just before this passage, Paul is writing a very complex doctrine about God's sovereign plan to save all of humanity. That he goes from just having a chosen people in Israel, and he goes out and says, I want to save the Gentiles too, because all men are under sin and in need of salvation. And this doesn't make sense to some of the Jews that Paul's writing to, and it doesn't make sense to many people, because Israel was God's chosen people. And he talks about Israel will be saved... But right now, they're hardened. They don't see clearly. And God wants to save all men, and he'll come back to Israel. And he doesn't want us ignorant about that truth. Um, But the complexities of that doctrine are a sermon for another day. But right after he talks about this doctrine of God wanting to save the Gentiles, he breaks off in praise, just right at the end of it. And this is where we read in verse 33 through 36. He says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths are beyond tracing out. God's ways and thoughts are far above our ways and thoughts. That's what the prophet Isaiah tells us. And we cannot grasp the mind of God. That's something us as man, as mortal, will never be able to get. Our words don't even describe God. We like to talk about him a lot, but our words don't accurately depict him. We can put thoughts on God, but they never fully capture his character and his divine nature. So when you say God is good, that's true, but I don't think we understand how good that is because we can only talk in what reference what we've seen. So we can't even capture this God with our language. He's this big. He's sovereign. He's over all of us. You cannot search his judgments and his paths. Yet he still shows mercy to us. He still chooses us. The creator of the universe, who is overall, beyond our understanding and comprehension, decides he wants to show mercy to men and women who've done wrong against the holy God. That's mind-blowing when you think about it, that the creator of the universe cares that much to show mercy to people who haven't honored him, and none of us have. This triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loves us, cares for a creation. He has given us a purpose, and He's given us hope through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, the depths of the riches. Of the knowledge and wisdom of God. These riches that Paul referring to is the truth of the gospel, God's character in its fullness, though we can't comprehend it, and his plan for redemption for all of humanity. And there are still mysteries, but he has revealed some of this to us in his word. And this is how we can know what God's will for our life is. And if we had all of it, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it. But he gives us just enough where we don't have to wander around this earth aimlessly, not knowing what God wants for our life. That's love, that a holy, great God would reveal just enough so men and women could live life and not wander aimlessly looking for hope in other places. Paul continues his moment of worship here, and he quotes from Isaiah forty in verse 34, and then also loosely quotes from Job 41, in verse 35. So Paul knows his scripture, and you should too. Amen. And he says, who knows the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? This mysterious grand plan for redemption and salvation of man isn't from somebody else. It's from God alone. He didn't have a team working on a game plan for him like, hey, I need to solve a problem. Somebody figure this out for me. He designed it solely within himself to redeem man. And we still don't fully understand how that works, right? That's mind-blowing that he would choose and redeem people that have gone against him. But he's the grand designer. There's nobody else designing these things for God. God does that within himself. And nobody knows what God is thinking except what he has revealed to us. There's no being above God that tells him what to do or that God looks to for advice. He's above all. For us to ever say that God had to look to somebody for advice or that somebody had to give something to God is absurd. We have to get a big picture of who God is, that it's not just a term, it's not nature It's not anything we want to put on it. God is God, and we can't fit him in our box. We can't comprehend him fully, and we never will be able to. And all good gifts flow from him. He is the giver of life, the very air you breathe. Therefore, your life is rightfully his. He owns you. He has created you. Nobody gives to him something that he should repay. In fact, all of creation owes God instead of vice versa. And that's what Paul is trying to get when he quotes here from Job, saying who has ever given to God that God should repay them. It's the opposite of that. The answer to that rhetorical question is no one. It's all his. He owns it all. Nobody can give to God. God is giving all to us. So not only is he the sole designer of his plan of redemption, he is also solely responsible for the actions of his plan. He is in control of all of this. He is above all, and he doesn't need anything from anybody else. In fact, he doesn't need us. God is fully fulfilled within himself, the Trinity. He doesn't need to look for somebody. He didn't need some company when he created he didn't need any of that. He could have stayed with himself. There's nothing outside of God that would have made his life better, that he would have needed, or he would have relied on. But he's still created, and he still chooses us. And that can only happen out of an act of love, out of his overflowing character of love, that he would create somebody to love. It's, it's hard to grasp when we sit on that concept that the only reason he created was love, not out of need, not that we could bring something to God, but that he cares and he loves, and that's the whole reason he created us. He has created you with a purpose, and he wants you to be in communion with him. He's overjoyed when his creatures honor and glorify him, and he desires the absolute best for you. And in his desiring of the absolute best for you, he knows that he is the best. God himself is the best. He's the peak of goodness and pleasure. Wrap your minds around that with me today. God is the peak of goodness and pleasure. You cannot be pleased beyond what God can please you. You only get temporary feelings that end up hurting you. He is the peak of it all. So therefore, if God wants the best for you, he in fact wants himself for you. He wants to give himself, hand himself over to you because he is the best and he wants the best for his people. And he did give himself for you, in fact, in the man Jesus Christ, the son of God who died and rose again so you could have life the absolute best life. Now we continue to verse 36, and this is the end of Paul's doxology or fancy word for worship. And it says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God is the creator of all things. He is the sustainer of all things. And everything is created for him and his glory. That's it. Even if you don't acknowledge it, God sustains you every day. Amen. He is your father and he's created you purposely for his glory. That's a, it's a hard concept to grasp that everything was not only created by him, it's sustained by him. And that it was made for him. Creation is not for us. We are not for ourselves. We are only for God. You were made for him. The problem is many of us decide to ignore this fact. That we were made for God. And we search for our significance in other places to be hurts. Or many of us don't have faith and think somehow we know what's better for our lives. Instead of the actual creator and maker of us. Folks, that's plain stupidity, right? That you would think that you know better than who has created you. Think about it this way. If you were to come to me, and you you just created some great software program for a computer or something, right? and you wanted me to check it out, so I'd come in and say, well, what does it do? What's the purpose of it? So you give me an instruction manual, and then you proceed to guide me through the instruction manual of how to use the program you created. And as you're talking to me and starting to guide me through it, I decide to just not listen to what you're doing, not look at the instruction manual, and do what I want with the program. And I play with it, do whatever I want, and I end up crashing the computer and destroying the very thing you made. I just wasn't listening to you. That's the same way we play God all the time, when we choose that our ways are better, or it's just a little sin, or that's in my nature. When God has given you the tools to live that way. He's given you instruction manual in the Bible to say, this is how you're supposed to live life. This is what I created you for. This is where you will be ultimately pleased and satisfied. And he doesn't just hand this to you. He guides you through it by his Holy Spirit. It's not, I mean, we have the tools to live how he made us to live but we seek to ignore him. Many acknowledge God is the creator and still don't live according to the call he has on their life. And right now I'm not talking about the specific call for your life, which we'll get there, but God's created purpose for man. You were called to be holy. And I'm sure you've heard that a lot. But what does that mean? It means that you as a human, created uniquely in the image of God, was set apart to worship and glorify God. You were set apart to worship and glorify God. And God is holy because he was set apart to be worshiped and glorified by creatures. Let me make this clear to you that that your created purpose in life is one thing and one thing only and that is to bring God glory. That is the sole reason that man was created, out of a love and to bring God glory. Bringing God glory is making his name famous, bringing him admiration, praise, honor, making his name known among the nations. That is bringing glory to God, and if you are not bringing glory to God In your life, in the very things you speak, you're living a life of disobedience. And this includes everything. This isn't just a part of your life. This isn't just your spiritual life or your church life. This is life. There's no other place to be. You must be glorifying God with your life and your speech or you're living in disobedience. And as you live out God's created purpose for you to glorify him, God will reveal his specific will for your life. It's nonsense for us to think, this has always got me, it's nonsense for us to beg God for direction and guidance. To say, I want to know your will for my life, but we don't follow the will he has already given us in his scripture. We don't follow the created purpose of us. Why would you be giving more to your will when you don't follow what is already handed to you? God has a specific call on your life, but you won't be able to see that clearly until you're living how God has called you to live. They go hand in hand. You must follow what you know God has handed you, and more will be revealed. And that may not be all of life revealed. That might just be the next step. But you have to take a step of faith and obedience first. So you may be thinking, how does this work practically? I get that my sole purpose is to bring God glory and worship. And I want to understand God's will for my life. I'm glad you asked. Paul continues with some practical doctrines. And in, in the book of Romans, it's divided into uh, two sections. The first 11 chapters, Paul is talking about doctrinal issues and very complex things. And then the second part, he's talking about practical issues. And this is where he transitions. He just had a moment of worship after talking about the mercy that God wants to show to man. And then he goes into Romans 12, which is what Mark read for us today. So if you can continue with me in Romans 12, starting in verse 1. It reads, therefore, referring back to God's sovereignty and his mercy... That we just talked about. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So in light of God's mercy he has shown to man, you are urged to present or offer your bodies as a sacrifice to God. When we think of sacrifices, we usually relate that back to the Old Testament, because sacrifices were used before Christ as a payment for sin that had to continually happen. Blood had to be shed for sin to be paid. And thank God, in our time, Christ already did that for us, and he did it once and for all, so we don't have to sacrifice lambs at the altar. He already shed blood in Jesus that paid for all that. So this sacrifice is a little different than the Old Testament. And the big difference is it's a living sacrifice, thank God. It's a living sacrifice, and this means that it is an active, continual sacrifice. It happens daily. All of your life, your activities, your emotions, your thoughts, your motives, your very soul, this is what's called forth in worship. This is what Paul is talking about when he says, offer your bodies. He's talking about the entirety of a person. That all of you must be sacrificed and submitted to God, to the King of Kings. And this sacrifice is what makes you holy. This makes you holy and set apart, ready for God's use, for his greater purposes in his plan of redemption. So when you sacrifice yourself to God, you give up all your wants, all your desires, all your needs, everything, and you hand those over to God. He will use you. That is you being ready to be used, just like Isaiah said in chapter 6 of his book, hear my Lord, use me. God is holy, I need to repent, was his thoughts. He wanted to be used by God, so he handed it all over to him. And Paul says this sacrifice, this very submission that is holy and pleasing to God, is your true and proper worship. Your true and proper worship. Other translations of this say your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service of worship. But either way, it is worship to God. That the very act of you handing over everything to God is worship. I think we need to broaden our mind about worship. Often when we talk about worship, we just think singing. And singing is a great tool to bring worship and glory to God. But worship is a lifestyle. It's not just something you do Sunday morning before somebody talks to you the whole time. Worship is a lifestyle, and this act of sacrificing is that worship. As creatures, we bear the image of God. It tells us this in Genesis chapter 1. And you bearing this image of God means you were designed for worship. It's the stamp that's put on you. It's in your DNA to worship something. So in life, you'll either worship one or another thing. You can either worship God, which is what you were created to worship, or you will worship yourself. Romans 1 states this clearly For they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. God has a holy call on your life. You are made to worship him, and this image of God inside of you will drive you to worship. But our sin distorts that, and we end up worshiping ourselves instead of what we were made for. And we are made for God, as we stated earlier. But God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, has broke those chains. And you can still be chained, but those chains can be broken through faith in this death and resurrection. Resurrection of Jesus Christ. When you have faith and you repent, which is this sacrifice, handing it all over to God, that is when the chains of sin are broken and you can worship who you're meant to worship. You can see clearly now. You must come in faith and repent, And this is your act of true worship. You know, God has, has called you, if you're a part of this church, or a part of any church, his church, and you're saved and being sanctified, he has called you to be a royal priesthood. It tells us this in 1 Peter and many other places in scripture, that you are a royal priesthood. That means you are a priest, which sounds kind of funny because we have some odd thoughts about priests nowadays because the term has been used in... Uh, Abused, but you are a priest who is serving under the high priest, who is Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for us now. And as your role as a priest, a priest brings God to the people and then brings the people to God. And we do this under the service of the high priest who did that very same thing and brought God to the people and coming down in the form of man and then brought the people to God by breaking the barrier, tearing the curtain by his death and resurrection. And that's our same role, to serve under Jesus, the high priest, and bring people to God and bring God to the people. So it's not just in the church. You can bring people to church, as part of it, right, and to God, to salvation. But you also are going out and bringing God to the people where they're at. And this is your role. If you are saved and being sanctified, you have faith in Christ, You are a priest. It's not just a specific role. It's not Sim or I or any other servers here. It's all Christians are priests. Grasp that concept with me today, that you can, that God has called you to be a priest for him, to be his very voice, That's why everybody asks why God doesn't just speak audibly to us. It's because he chooses to use people to speak his voice. Now, that doesn't mean God can't speak audibly. He can, and I've heard stories of where he does. But God chooses out of love to use people to give us purpose. Otherwise, we don't have a purpose. If we don't glorify God, we have nothing to our life but just aimless wandering and trying to find something to satisfy So the fact that God doesn't talk to us in an audible voice all the time is his love, that he chooses us. And this continues from here. Let's look at the second part of verse 2, or the first part of verse 2. Romans 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We'll pause right there. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. If you're going to present your bodies as a holy sacrifice to God, you're going to start to not look like the world and to think a lot differently. Paul gives us two imperative commands right here, one being a negative command and one being a positive command. His first one is the negative command where he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world or some translations say the pattern of this evil age. This negative command is an indication to stop something immediately. It's not, hey, when you get around to it, stop doing those things. It's stop conforming to the ways of the world right now. We must put off those things of the world, is what he talks about in other things, and put on the things of Christ. Put on the things that renew our minds. As faithful believers, we must interact properly with the world. This doesn't mean that we are not in it in the fact that we need to be these priests that bring God to the people, but we look a lot different when we're in it. Right? So it's not a complete avoidance of it. It's acting properly in it and then bringing people to God as we're still in the world now. So you're taking your royal priesthood, And you're using it properly by not conforming to the world, but being in it. We must be able to discern what is of God and what is not of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in this world. We must know when something is a sinful action or when their motives are wrong. And we must not take part in that. We must look different. And it's not hard to see that this world is screwed up. You can just take a look at our media, right? You can't sit down tonight and watch TV without commercials coming up that are equivalent to porn. That's a sad state. We need to be guarding our minds. Our video games today are full of killing and violence to a crazy degree, and we're just cool with handing those to our kids so they get out of our hair. That it's funny to blow off somebody's head. I think we need to rethink our actions, because some of the things we do, we look like the world. We fight constantly over nothing or nonsense, or we wave a political flag before we wave the flag of Christ. That looks a lot like the world. God is asking for more of that from us, for, to stop this nonsense, to say, do not conform to the ways of the world." We're faced constantly with temptations of drugs and parties in the street life, thinking it'll satisfy, but we must resist Satan's temptations. The book of James tells us if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. It's not a, if you resist, you'll still be attacked. He will flee. You have that power in God. The problem is we're not resisting. Stop making excuses for ourselves, and we need to resist what the devil throws at us. We often make excuses like, oh, I can't help it, or that's part of my human nature. That's not part of your human nature. Man was created good. It's part of the fallen nature of the world, and we can resist it. God has given us the tools for greatness in him, but we must tap into them. And if you're wondering what these tools are, this is what uh, we keep pushing forth in the church, this five-spoke wheel, that scripture, prayer, evangelism, fellowship, and fasting. Those disciplines are the things that keep you out of the world and start to transform your mind by the Holy Spirit using those disciplines. These are the tools that God has handed you. Use them and use them with self-control. Put off the things of the world and now put on something else. Paul then gives us a positive command. He first says don't conform, but then he says be transformed by renewing your minds. So the first thing you put off the world, the things of the world, and you put on the renewing of your mind, something good. The tense of this world, transformed, means something like continually transform. So a better translation of it would be keep on being transformed or continually transform yourself. It's not a, one and done thing like what Christ has given to us. Our transformation is a continuous process that we take part in daily, just like this sacrifice that we give. And how does this transformation happen? He says, by the renewing of your minds. You must change the way you think. Naturally, we think like the ways of the world or whatever has been handed down to us. Our thought process works the same way. And he's challenging us to put off those things and think differently. Your mind is the center of your body's emotions, its actions, all of your thoughts. Everything flows out of what your mind does. So when your mind is changed, your life will be changed. But you cannot make this change on your own. You must have faith in Christ. And he will gift you with the Holy Spirit that will make this transformation with you through the practices, the spiritual disciplines, that five spoke wheel, that you get into your scripture. You actually see what the instruction manual says. You pray to God. That's a gift that we take advantage of. We just throw it to the wayside or throw it up in desperate need. But we can talk to the creator. That's a big deal that you evangelize, you do your priestly duty in going out to the world and telling them about Christ, that you fellowship, you come into the church and you join the body, you enjoy each other's company, live in community, because that's how he's created us, and that you fast, that you discipline yourself to not conform to these things of the world, but to do what God has for you. If you do these things, you will not look like the world. That's clear. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. A lifestyle filled with this discipline will be a life that is sacrificed to the king, just like this living sacrifice that he's talked about. And you will start living in your created purpose, which is to glorify and worship God. And this will lead you to God's specific will for your life. And that's where Paul goes next. In Romans 12, verse 2, the second half of it, it reads, Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. So after you have sacrificed, you've handed it all over to God, you're not conforming to the ways of the world, but you're continually being transformed by the Holy Spirit. Then you will be able to discern what God's will for your life is. You'll be able to test and approve what God's will for your life is. Now, what does it mean to test and approve God's will? It sounds kind of like we're putting God on trial, but I don't think that's accurately depicted here. We know that God's will is good, it's perfect, it's pleasing, it is the ultimate good. Paul already indicated that in the last half of this verse. And as we continue to not conform and be transformed, our desires and our vision will change. The word behind test and approve was typically used in testing metals. And you've probably heard similar metaphors in scripture. When you test a metal like gold or silver, you have to put it through fire so you can scrape off the garbage. And then you can see the true metal in its purity. And James uses the same metaphor to talk about trials in our life. But that's the metaphor that's behind this word, and I believe what Paul is trying to get at here. That through transforming your minds, you will see clearly, and the garbage can be scraped off, and you will be able to discern what God's will for your life is. Amen. You will be able to discern what God's will for your life is. But you've got to let God scrape off the garbage first. So once you're living in your creative purpose to worship and glorify God, through the transforming of the mind, you will see clearly what God wants specifically for your life. And he does have a specific plan for each and every life in here of where you need to go and what you need to do and how you are going to be used in God's greater plan of redemption. Now, I'm not presenting to you a five-step process of how to discern God's will for your life, because I'm not the guy who's going to lie to you and say that life's that easy. It's not. Life is very complicated. And most of the time, God doesn't give full revelations of your entire life in a dream, and you just follow that. Though he can, and he has, that's not the norm. But God gives us what we can handle at that time, that we can see his will clearly, but that may only be the next step but you have to faithfully take each of those steps knowing he will continue to reveal what he wants for your life and continue to guide your steps. That God will guide us and he will never forsake his people. That's a beautiful hope that we can rest in and we can truly enjoy life in. We talked about earlier enjoying God, that this is what we do when we live in our created purpose. If you understand that God is guiding your steps when you come to faith in him, you can enjoy life. You don't have to worry about a thing. God holds your steps in the palm of his hand. There's nothing to stress out about. That's a comforting truth. And I know I need to daily remind myself of that when I'm clueless of what's next or I'm clueless where I'm supposed to go. I know that God guides my steps and I just have to patiently follow what I do know until he shows me the next one. (laughs) And Before we wrap this up, I would like to give you a fair warning about God's will for your life also. That you may be able to see clearly after you've given your life over to Christ in faith and repentance. You're not conforming to the ways of the world but being transformed. But honestly, God's will is extreme. And it doesn't make sense to a perishing and dying world. God's created purpose for your life will take you to some crazy places. It'll take you out of your comfort zone, to places you never thought you'd be. But I promise that, that's oh so fulfilling when you walk in those steps that true pleasure and satisfaction come even in the crazy places that God's going to take you. I'd like to read for you one more passage of Scripture, and this is Jesus' words that he's telling to his disciples right after he predicts his death and suffering on the cross. He tells them that he's going to suffer by the chief priests and elders, and he's going to die, and then he'll rise again. And right after this, in the Gospel of Luke, He gives us some sobering and heavy words to chew on. And just like Sim likes to quote John 10.10 as his life verse, I would say this is um, my life verse. Luke 9, starting in verse 23, it says, Then he, and this is Jesus speaking, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. That's tough when you think about it. Especially the second half of that, verse 24. We often don't grasp that. That if anyone wishes to save their life, that they want to hold on to things that they think are better for them, they want to follow their own way. They'll lose it. Their life will be taken away from them. They'll never truly live. But if you lose your life for Christ's sake, you will be saved. And Jesus here is speaking in the context of death. He just predicted his death on the cross, his death in suffering that he would have to go through so you could have life. So it's not all a spiritual meaning to just die to your flesh and live godly, though that is true. He's talking about literal death in some cases. If you're going to live God's will, if you're going to be a living sacrifice who has renewed your mind, you're going to be under this thought process. That I'm willing to lose my life for Christ if that's his will for me. That I will throw all my goods out the window. That I will not try to capture things for myself, look out for my own being, but I will look out for the kingdom of God. And if I lose my life because of it, all glory to the king. That I'm willing to lose everything. If I'm in poverty and suffering for my entire life, because that's God's will, to God be the glory. If I have to go to a country where I'm rejected and they don't understand me and don't want it and I'm killed for it, to God be the glory. If I live here in America and I'm persecuted, to God be the glory. God's will is extreme. And it, it seems odd that this would be his will, that he would reject want us rejected among the world that we would suffer here in this life. But here's where the beauty comes in, is Christ didn't just predict his death in this context. He also predicted his resurrection. That he said, I will die, but I will rise three days later. And that goes the same for us, that this life is the life that we live in the context of death. That we are willing to lose it all, we throw out all our good, knowing it's for the glory of the kingdom. That's my created purpose. And that I will reign in glory with Christ, worshiping him after the resurrection. That just like Christ, he suffered, he lived homeless, he was his servants. He didn't live in the glory of what God is. We just talk about God being sovereign over all, above all. Jesus didn't look like that. He was the suffering servants, and we're called to the same lifestyle, that we are to lose our life for Christ, be willing to do that, not looking out for our own good before the interest of his people and his kingdom and his glory, knowing that we can hope and rest in the resurrection to come, that no matter what trial or suffering we're going through in this world, if you have faith in Christ, you can hope in the next life where everything will be a million times better. You can't even compare to this life now. There will be no more suffering, and all glory will be given to the king and his kingdom. If the worship team would come back up. I want you to hear me, hear me shout in this church, see it clearly. That God has created all things, all things are created through him, sustained by him, and all things were created for him, and that includes you. You were made for God. Your created purpose is to worship and bring glory to God all your days, even if that means suffering or death. When you live in your created purpose, you sacrifice by handing it all over to the king, God will show you his specific will for your life, and you will win. We don't lose. That's what the resurrection is. And when you can clearly see God's will for your life, you can rest in this truth, and you can truly enjoy God, that God is meant to be enjoyed, and he wants his creation to delight in him in all this sacrifice, in losing your life for Christ, you will be truly satisfied, and God will be most glorified. So come forward today and lose it all for Christ. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sermon Archives from William R. Horn. Make sure you subscribe, rate, review, and check us out on YouTube. Follow your boy on Twitter at William R. Horn, H-O-R-N-E. And check us out at KingdomDreamer.com.